This is a special two-part daily devotional episode that contains daily devotional for five four May the fourth, which was yesterday, and May the fifth, which was today. So in it we cover the verse of the day for May the fourth. And are through the Bible in one year segment for that year, which was day day which was day one twenty four in which we covered John two John chapter two verses thirteen to twenty five. And it also includes our verse of the day for May fifth and are through the Bible in one year segment for day one twenty five in which we covered or um, John 3, 1 through 21. Hello and welcome, my faithful <coughs> and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to another segment of verse of the day. Today's verse comes from Psalm 37 verses 1 through 11 which say, Do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass they will soon wither, like green plants they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take the light in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways. When they carry out their wicked schemes, refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found, but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. The psalm 37 is an acrostic that shares much in common with the book of Proverbs. In an acrostic psalm, each line or stanza begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the result is an A to Z treatment that is easy to teach and is easy to memorize. Psalm 37 attempts to persuade struggling Israelites to trust God and cultivate a humble, righteous life, even when they see unethical people prospering all around them. The psalm begins by warning God's people not to envy evildoers because their success will fade. That's verses 1 and 2. Instead, the righteous should trust God to do good, be satisfied with him, and commit to him. That's verses 3 through 6. God does not give us all that we desire, but his gift is far better. He instills in our hearts good desires that he then satisfies. That's verse 4. 
jealousy, bitterness, and anger over sinful people's success lead nowhere. Good days, verses 7 through 8. And make no sense because a great reversal is coming. The wicked, the wicked will be uprooted while the righteous will inherit the land. So the land is a central theme in the 37th Psalm. Inheriting the land is the main blessing for the righteous. While the main punishment for the wicked is being cut off from the land. The land, prom- the land God promised Abraham and his descendants was the locus of his blessing. In other words, it's the location of his blessing. A community ruled by God, guided by his work, flourishing under his care, ordered by his justice, and protected by his strength. As Jesus brings the kingdom of heaven to earth, he promises that his followers will inherit this land and all it represents. That's Matthew 5, verse 5. And today's Bible readings are Judges 19 through 20, John 3, 22 through 4, 3, Psalm 104, verses 24 through 35, and Proverbs 14, verses 22 through 24. So that concludes our verse of the day. We're now going to move into day 124 of our Through the Bible in One Year segment. With our focus for today being on John 2, 13 through 25. So yesterday we looked at the first major event in this section of John's Gospel. And that first major event was Jesus' turning the water into wine. We then discussed what John meant when he wrote the wine, and meant even further by discussing whether or not this wine Jesus made from water was alcoholic or not. And today we come to the second and final major event detailed in this chapter in chapter 2. And that is the cleansing of the temple. John puts this event early in Jesus' ministry, while Matthew, Mark, and Luke put this event at the end of Jesus' ministry. In all probability, this event occurred more than once. So the account in John is accurate, and the accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are also accurate. And now let's turn our attention to Jesus' cleansing of the temple. So we're going to begin in John chapter 2, verse 13. And we're going to go through verse 17 to start off with, which says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all of them from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem near the time of Passover. 
So travelers went up to Jerusalem because of its elevation. <coughs> so this is the first of three Passovers mentioned in John's Gospel. So the Passover festival was one of three annual pilgrimage festivals. Passover commemorated the deliverance of the Jewish people from and was celebrated in the early spring, so that would be between March and April in our calendar reckoning. The Passover was a week-long festival, so the Passover itself was one day, and then the Festival of Unleavened Bread lasted the rest of the week. John mentions other Jewish festivals as well, an unnamed festival in chapter 5, verse Chapter 5, verse 1, the Festival of Tabernacles in chapter 7, verse 2, and the Festival of Dedication, or Hanukkah, in chapter 10, verse 22. So Jesus entered the temple, and so a little note of the temple, the Jewish temple was the location of Israel's sacrificial system. Solomon had built the first temple on this same site, almost, almost a thousand years earlier. But it was destroyed by the Babylonians, and we find that reference in Second Kings chapter 25. So the temple at this time, which was the second temple, was built in 516 B.C. Here, the great began enlarging and renovating it in 20 B.C., and the process was still ongoing in Jesus' time. In Jesus' time. So John's reference to the temple courts refers to the area surrounding the temple proper. So when we talk about the temple courts, that's the only part that the women could enter. It's the only part that the Gentiles could enter. So keep that in mind. So buying and selling took place in the court of Gentiles, which was the only place they were allowed to enter. So the temple tax was to be paid in local currency, so foreigners had to have their money changed. Not a bad thing. So what was the bad thing? So the bad thing was that the money changers charged exorbitant exchange rates. In other words, this was not a service they offered to provide a means for these people to worship it, but had now become a means for them to make a money off of these people's need to worship God. And so since many of uh, so the people were required to also make a sacrificial offering, and since many of the pilgrims came from great distances, they could not bring their own animals which meant that m animal merchants also flourished in the temple courtyard. So what was so bad about that? What was so wrong about that? So the price of the sacrificial animals that were sold in the temple courtyard was much higher than elsewhere. In other words, these people were also making money off of these travelers' need to worship God. So they were making money off of these people's need to worship God. That was the bad thing. So you following so far? Hope you are. Right? And it is very probable that these two groups were working together 
it is very probable they were taking kickbacks from each other. So in other words, they could only use temple coin within the temple. So the money changers changed the money, charged an exorbitant rate. The sellers of the sacrificial animals would only take temple coin. And so the money changers would give a little bit of that extra rate over to the animal sellers. And when the animal sellers had to go and return their money back into official Roman currency, they would go back to the money changers and the money changers would charge them a better rate. So they got more money back for the temple coin than they got for when they had the people pay for the sacrificial animals. In other words, it was kind of like a shady used car dealership, right? Where the used car dealership sends you to their mechanic who charges you an exorbitant price because he's getting money back from the used car dealership for having been referred to you. Follow me so far. So that was the problem with all of this. <coughs> so only later did the disciples understand the significance of this event. So Jesus' life was fueled by f- zeal for his father's honor. So Psalm 69.9 describes how David's zeal for God's house caused him problems with his enemies. And one greater than David experienced the same response when he showed a zeal, not only for God's house, but for God's honor, which was what the money changers and the people selling the sacrificial animals had soiled. Are you following me so far? Let's pick up with this story now. So we're going to go, we're going to start in verse 18 and go through verse 22 now. So which says, the Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus, so the Jews demanded that Jesus perform a sign to demonstrate his authority to clear the temple. So his answer is ironic. It's ironic. How is it ironic? It's ironic in that the Jews would be the means of bringing about this sign. So he said, I'll show you a sign. You want a sign? Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. So what's the temple he's talking about? Let's understand that, right? So Jesus said that he would destroy the temple. That they would. De- Jesus said not that he would destroy the temple, but they would destroy it and he would raise it. And they understood him to be speaking about the literal temple, this literal place within Jerusalem that they had built with their own hands, their ancestors had built with their own hands, that they were in the process of renovating. But that's not the temple 
that Jesus was talking about, raising up in three days. So John clarifies for his readers that Jesus was speaking about his own body. Right? Because it says after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. After Jesus' resurrection, the disciples remembered his words. In the past, God had manifested his presence and glory in the Jerusalem temple. But now it was and is manifested in the person of his son. So now let's finish up this passage with the... Starting in verse 23, going now through verse 25, which says, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all the people, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. For he knew what was in each person. So, Jerusalem's response to Jesus was unacceptable. And because of that, Jesus did not entrust himself to the people because he knew they did not have genuine faith. A person's... So, let's understand a little bit about that, right? So, it says they believed in his name, right? <coughs> they saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. So a person's name in ancient times summed up the whole person. The fact they believed in his name means they believed also in him. But Jesus knew they did not have genuine faith. He knew no he knew what no ordinary human being could possibly have known. That these people only believed in him because they had seen the signs that he had performed, not because they had actual faith in the fact that he was the one sent to save the people from their sins. So what's the takeaway? What's the grand takeaway from this? So what's the grand takeaway? And what is the takeaway? The takeaway is very simple and very easy. Many of us who have been claimed to be followers of Jesus do not have genuine faith. We manifest that lack of genuine faith through our actions. We, like the people of first century Jerusalem, see no problem in making money off the people that come into churches to worship. The very people that we should be providing and facilitating an atmosphere of worship and rather than providing and and <coughs> rather than providing and I just lost my train of thoughts. Give me just a minute. Rather than providing and allowing and setting up an atmosphere for them to worship, we have instead made it all about how we can best benefit from them, rather than how they can best benefit from coming to this place where they are supposed to be meeting the one who has set us, one who will save them from their sins. So then what is needed? What then is needed? So the question then becomes, how can we fix this problem? 
And the solution to the problem is to truly put your faith and trust in Jesus. And if you're ready to do that, here's a very simple prayer that you can pray to do that. Dear God, I know that my sin has separated me from you. Thank you that Jesus Christ died in my place. I ask Jesus to forgive my sin and to come into my life. Please begin to direct my life. Thank you for giving me eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. And tomorrow's Bible readings are Judges 21 and Ruth 1, John 4, 4 through 42, Psalm 105, 1 through 15, and Proverbs 14, 25. <laughs>
that the chapter concludes with an explanation of why Jesus appeared to John and to everyone else. And we will cover that tomorrow. So what we're going to be covering today is Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. And so we're going to start with John 3. And we're going to start verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 3 for right now. Which says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So Nicodemus is an example of those referred to in John 2, 23-25. Excuse me. He was impressed by Jesus' signs, but did not have genuine faith. He was a member of the Pharisaic sect in the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish high court for, for, for religious matters. He appeared to express a sincere desire to learn more about Jesus. Yet despite his esteemed position, he needed to experience a new birth. So Nicodemus makes three comments during his conversation with Jesus. And each of them was answered by Jesus. So Nicodemus began by acknowledging that Jesus came from God, which is his first comment or his first question or his first statement. So he has used the pronoun we there, right? So it says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So his use of the pronoun implies that his inquiry was not just for himself. He was not just inquiring about this for himself. But Jesus cuts right to the heart of the issue by declaring that a person must be born again. So that's verse 3. So Jesus replied to this statement by saying, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So let's talk a little bit about what that means. Right, so the term born again can also be translated born from above. So John probably intends both thoughts, meaning that the new birth is a work of God and results in a dramatic transformation. So we're going to pick up there starting in verse 4 and going through verse 8. Which says, so this is Nicodemus talking here, How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So this is Nicodemus' second comment slash question. And Nicodemus, unfortunately, interpreted Jesus' words literally. So Jesus noted 
So what, what do you mean by literally, right? So that means Nicodemus thought in his mind, well, you know, I can't go back into my mother's womb and be born again since I am old. So then how can I be born again? Nicodemus didn't get it. Nicodemus thought, hmm, birth can only happen the natural way. We're going to talk about that later. So Jesus noted that if someone is to enter God's kingdom, they must be born of water and the Spirit. This phrase, water and Spirit, is parallel to being born again, but it expands the concept. So Jesus' words here allude to Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 and 27, verses 25 through 27, which say, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So so understand where that's coming from, right? So when one is born again, they receive a spiritual cleansing that comes from Titus 3.5. So people become members of an earthly family by natural birth. That means your mama and daddy come together and they make you through a natural process. So what then are we talking about when we talk about this concept of born again? So Jesus was in, but uh, but they but you become members of God's family by spiritual birth. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about this concept of being born again. So Jesus was emphatic. In fact, there was no other way to join God's family than by rebirth, but not rebirth through a natural way, but being re- rebirth through a spiritual way. Are we following so far? So Jesus, <coughs> Jesus illustrated his point by comparing the work of the Spirit to the blowing of the wind, right? And so it's important to note the words wind and spirit translate the same Greek and Hebrew words. They're the exact same words in both Greek and Hebrew with the underlying meaning of something that you can feel but you can't see the origins of. It's important to understand, right? So while the wind's origin is invisible, its effects are apparent. And the same is true as and the same is true of those born of the spirit. Their origin is invisible, right? When you're born of the spirit. But the effects of being born of the spirit are apparent to everyone around you. So we're following me so far. So we're going to pick up there at verse 9. Where Nicodemus is speaking to him verse 15. So how can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. Now then, 
<clears throat> How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Ooh, lots of good stuff in here, right? So this is Nicodemus. There's one final question. So Nicodemus, as a prominent teacher, should have understand these things. Jesus' use of we, of we here, probably refers to the Father and himself. This two-fold witness confirmed the truthfulness of his words. So the earthly things, that's verse 12, refers to the new birth. So what are we talking about there? He says, so I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? So the key to understanding Jesus' teaching is faith in a crucified son. Gotta understand it, it's faith in a crucified son. So Jesus explained there's a great distance between this world and heaven. Right? And Jesus bridges that distance, validating his divine stature by defeating death and returning to heaven. So Jesus illustrated his statement by pointing to events recorded in Numbers 21, verses 8 and 9. So let's take a look at what that actually says so we can understand a little bit better this illustration that Jesus is making. So that's Numbers 21, verses 8 through 9, right? So, <coughs> actually we're going to start in verse... Four and go through verse nine. So they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Test miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone who was bitten by a snake had looked at the bronze snake, they lived. So you see, so what, what are we talking about here? So when the Israelites were wandering, when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, God sent a plague of snakes to punish them for their rebellious attitudes. If they obeyed God's command to look at the lifted up, bronze snake after being bitten, they would be healed. Anyone see the parallel here yet? So the idea of Jesus being lifted up speaks of his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation. So the verse, this is the first of three lifted up sayings in this gospel. So those who look to the lifted up Son of Man and believe in him will have eternal life. So John 3.15, that's the verse that says that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. 
is the first reference to eternal life in this gospel. And eternal life is the life of God, which resides in Christ, and is given to all believers. This life is a present reality for those who believe. And so now we're going to pick up in verse 16, and we're going to go through verse 18. These next few verses are going to sound really, really familiar, because we all know them, and we've all heard them a million times. But listen to them just, listen to them anyway. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe can <coughs> excuse me, does not believe, stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So verse sixteen, that's the part that said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Right? That's the most well known and beloved verse in the Bible. So it states that Jesus is God's unique son. His death is a supreme demonstration of God's love. So the purpose of Jesus' coming is brought out both negatively and positively. So in verse 16, we see that God sent Jesus so that those who believe in him will not perish. That's the negative part. But have eternal life. That's the positive part. So in verse 17, God sent Jesus not to condemn the world at this time, that's the negative part, but to bring salvation, that's the positive part. Right, so love and salvation are the reasons the Father sent his Son. They're the very reasons that God sent Jesus to this earth. So salvation was, and it still is, central to Jesus' mission. And belief in Jesus is the decisive issue here. Those who believe in him are not condemned, while those who do not believe in him are condemned already. So now we're going to finish up, starting in verse 19 and going through verse 21, <coughs> which says, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light. Because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deed will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So these verses look back at Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus and explain why some believe and others do not. So the refusal to trust in Christ is part of a cosmic battle between light and darkness. <clears throat> those who trust in him and live in obedience to the truth are in the light, while those who do not come to the light are described as loving the darkness, hating the light, and refusing the light. The difference between the believer and the unbeliever is their differing attitudes towards the light. The refusal to believe was a moral issue more than an intellectual one. Therefore, what was going on with Nicodemus was more significant than just an intellectual discussion between two rabbis or between two teachers. 
It was, in fact, a cosmic battle between truth and error, light and darkness, eternal life, and final judgment. So the question for you to consider now is what side of this great cosmic battle are you on? Are you on the side of light or are you on the side of darkness? Are you on the side of truth or are you on the side of error? Are you on the side that lives with the present reality of eternal life or are you on the side that lives in fear of final judgment? If you like Nicodemus have questions and if those questions have been answered for you today, then here's how you move from darkness into light, from living in error to living in truth, and from living in fear of final judgment to living in the present reality of eternal life. Put your faith and trust in Jesus by acknowledging the fact that you have sinned, that the penalty for that sin is spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God. And by acknowledging the fact that you can do nothing to change your standing before God, and that it is only through the sacrificial death of Jesus that you can gain right standing with God. But most importantly of all, you must declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And here's how you declare what you believe in your heart. So here's, the, here's what you do to declare that, right? Here's the very simple, basic prayer that you can pray to declare with your mouth what you already believe in your heart. Dear God, I know that my sin has separated me from you. Thank you that Jesus Christ has died in my place. I ask Jesus to forgive my sin and to come into my life. Please begin to direct my life. Thank you for giving me eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. And tomorrow's Bible readings are with 2 through 4, John 4, 30, uh, 43 through 54, Psalm 105, 16 through 36, and Proverbs 14, 26 through 27. <laughs>